All right, please join me in a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your love and goodness to us. We can gather here today. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have given us in Christ. Thank you that we belong to you, that we are a part of your family, part of your kingdom. And not only that, Lord, but that we have a calling on our lives to participate in its advancement, in the proclamation of its good news. Help us, Lord, in light of the text today to be good stewards of that, knowing that you empower the work, you give us all the wisdom and strength necessary to be faithful and to proclaim Christ our Lord. May that be done this morning as we focus on the text at hand. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everyone, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. Continue our study in chapter 4 this morning. 1 Peter, chapter 4. The text is verse 7 through 11. Verse 7 through 11. So please follow along as I read. New American Standard. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> so here we are, guys, uh, in the second half of 1 Peter. And as I remind you, 1 Peter is a book that we uh, are going through because, among other things, it tells us basically, in very efficient fashion, everything we need to know about the Christian life. And we, even a quick reading will demonstrate just how much is there, just how much substance and, pr- and, and, and truth is packed in to this very small five-chapter book. And yet we take our time going through it because Peter says very succinctly what is worthy of being unpacked and what is uh, worthy of being explored. Turn over the various verses that he writes and we expound upon them and we find so much encouragement. We find ourselves today in part four of this book and uh, as, we, as we recall, Peter opens up this book by uh, expounding upon salvation, what we have called the foundation of true grace. Remember, Peter is all about standing firm in the true grace of God. He gets to that very important point at the end of this book. That's the first part. Second part is this, submission. What do we do in light of our salvation? Or how do we stand? How do we stand on this foundation? So submission is the footing of true grace. talks a lot about our relationships with other institutions. Thirdly is security that we have called the fortress of true grace. Knowing that grace is secure and may not always be safe because there is persecution, there is affliction that accompanies standing faithfully. But nonetheless, we are secure in Christ. And then we get to chapter 4, verses 7-11, through and that is part 4. It's a small part, but it is very significant and 
among the most practical portions of 1 Peter because it relates to us, the one another's, how we practice that within the confines of the church. We could say very clearly that if we are unable to abide by these things, to employ the power of God's grace, to practice these things, we will find it very difficult to be effective in this world. That is steadfastness. That is the theme, the, the, the theme number four. We call that the flame of true grace. That the church, as long as it is the church, perseveres as that city on a hill. The light that is to never be extinguished, for it is the light of the gospel that we shine, who puts forth the word of truth, calling all men to repent and trust in Christ. So we will close out our study this morning. We have separated it into a few parts, but we will do verses 10 and 11 today. So going through this, we have first talked about this, that uh, the theme being the end of all things. Peter gets our attention by saying this in verse 7, the end of all things is near. So we will repeat this, that we have work to do. We are to pay attention to what Peter says in light of this. We are not to read end of all things as as Peter communicating to us that we have to be in a huge hurry because the world is going to be destroyed and as if there is some kind of giant cosmic clock that we are working against. The main issue behind Peter saying this is for the church to turn its attention toward the great work of the Gospel and to do that work with consistency and with excellence. To do that work as God intends. That's why these instructions in this passage are so pointed. It tells us just that. What this passage concerns itself mainly is not to be in some kind of end times fervor or hurry, but it is concerned mainly with how we do the work and why, and not how quickly. There is urgency, no doubt about it, but not because the world is going to be destroyed as we commonly think of it. There is urgency because God is calling every believer in Jesus Christ to put their hand to the plow and join in this work. To do this work because God is transforming this world. And this work is done by the church. So we shouldn't think it's strange that Peter is urgently calling us to attention. It's all hands on deck. There is no sitting around. No one has any claim to say, I have put in my time or that I am somehow above this work. There is no sitting around. We understand in this that it is a great task because you realize for the last 2,000 years, the old order is slowly decaying. Right? And I think, based on the historicity of this text, that event that, is, that so clearly gives us context in this is not only persecution, but as we mentioned last time, the destruction of Jerusalem. When Jerusalem was sacked in AD 70 by the Romans, one of the things that Jesus was demonstrating was not only the truth of His Word, but that the old order was coming to an end. That it was passing away. And that a new order, that is the new covenant order, would grow and proliferate as the gospel was faithfully preached. And even though we, we do not know every little detail as to how this is going to work itself out, we know one thing is for sure, is that it will. Christ is true to His Word, and the gospel will do its transforming work. There is no doubt about that. And so even though those events took place, it's no reason or time to cower in fear to run for the hills and stay there. It is to engage ourselves 
and to hear that calling clear, clearly and to go about the work of the Master. And so the, the, the quick rundown of this text, pay attention to verse 7, where it says, The end of all things is near, therefore keep, uh, let's see, be, be of sound judgment and sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer. That is, that the end of all things spurs us on to godly attention. Pay attention. The church is not to be unawares of what God is doing or unawares of the devil's schemes. He faces that with clear judgment, a sound mind, so he can pray, so he can be watchful and not lose heart. That is the godly attention. And then secondly is this, godly affection, a godly kind of love, a godly quality of love. He says, above all, verse 8, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. How is the church to be faithful to this work if we're always constantly being offended by one another, holding grudges and never able to overlook an offense? Thirdly, at the end of all things, we are spurred on to a godly acceptance. That is, we receive one another in the spirit of that brotherly love. In verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Be hospitable. Show a love for strangers, a love for one another. And most of us know each other, but there may be strangers to you in, in, our, in our midst here. People that you do not know. Receive them. Show them hospitality in whatever way that comes. And do so without complaint. Do so with joy. So those are the first three things. We have two more today, and that is the godly assignment and the godly ambition. So here's the fourth one. The end of all things spurs us on to a godly assignment. What is the assignment of the church toward one another? It is to serve. That's our great assignment, is serving one another. And I would say this at the expense of forgetting it, so I'll say it now, and we've said it before. Verses 7-9 through must be in place. Those must be habits and practices of the church if 10 and 11 are able to be carried out. If we are not hospitable, loving, and prayerful, and we're always complaining and complacent, and we have no love for one another, we will find it nearly impossible to do what is commanded and instructed in verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11, teaching and serving, are done in the spirit of prayer, love, sober-mindedness, and being hospitable. So this is our godly assignment. This is the work that we do as the Gospel spreads, in order to spread the Gospel. And that is verses 10 through 11. So he says this, as each one has received a special gift. That's the first one. So let's break this down a little bit. Let's, let's break this assignment down so we know how we're supposed to look at it. Here's the first one. Realize what God has given. Realize what God has given. That just, that just comes to understand the truth that God has given us a special gift. Can't employ what you don't know that you have. So we realize what God has given. As each one has received a special gift. We understand this as a gift of God graciously bestowed, or a grace gift. It is that which makes it special, that which makes it stand out. It is something that God, by His own goodness, by His own freedom, gives to people in His church so that we may serve one another. It's not earned, it's not conjured, and sometimes I would say it can be faked, but it can only be faked for so long. It's often imitated but never duplicated but they are given to us. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians. We read about it in our Scripture reading as well from Romans 12, where he says, 
concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. That's the first thing he says. I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact that you have these things. I think the church doesn't talk enough about spiritual gifts, or we may talk about them, but never actually employ them. Never actually explore in our own life what it is that God has given us. A little farther down in that passage, he says, but to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. See, we know the purpose here. It's not to be self-serving. It's not to draw attention to ourselves. But it is for the common good, the good of all, that everyone may benefit from this. We don't use these gifts in isolation. That is what we are to realize about them. And as we employ them, we see those blessings that God has equipped every believer to carry out His directives. You think about it, God's not going to give His people a command and then fail to equip them to do so. He gives us everything we need. Every Christian without exception has received His enablement by the Holy Spirit in order to minister to the rest of the body of Christ. Good text for this is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. God already had in mind how we would carry this out. Another version says that we may walk in them. That serving would be a, a, a habit of life, a way of life. But, but so many of these good works could not be accomplished without the giving of these spiritual or grace gifts. Now Peter, very succinctly, this is why we expand on what Peter says, because he is able to uh, very... Uh, concisely describe these things. He, he only breaks down service in the church in two categories, teaching and serving. But listen to Romans 12, 3-8. For, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. See, you see the thinking there. What do you have that you haven't received? It's, don't think that somehow you came by this because of your own wisdom and insight and strength and, and ability. But then he says this, but to think so as to have sound judgment as, what's the basis for this sound judgment? As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. So he lays the groundwork. He, here is how we are to think of one another. But Peter gives us sort, sort, the, the, the time set, the setting of the time, the context of what's happening. But here we are to, this is how we are to relate to one another. The spirit of how we are to employ these gifts. So he says in verse 6 of Romans 12, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace, there's that word again, grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. You notice that Peter not only describes the gifts, but he also says, here is how you are supposed to use them. Peter tells us the same thing. Here are the gifts, and here is the manner in which you are to use them. We can see these passages, Romans 12 and 1 Peter 4, in tandem. We realize that the gift of God is not only given by His grace, but that He has also given us the faith necessary to operate. Remember, whatsoever is not a faith is sin. We don't want to find ourselves in a place where we're, we're serving apart from faith without trusting in God for the provision 
to exercise these gifts. We don't want to be wishy-washy or doubting or unbelieving when we seek to put them to work. We must understand that God is the gift giver. But nothing that we perform as His people, as slaves of Christ, is done apart from faith in Christ. We always, in every activity, are resting in His finished work and it is provision of the Holy Spirit and that Jesus Himself is the One who qualifies us for the work of ministry. It all, it all goes back to what Christ has done. That is our foundation. It's our starting point. But that starting point is simply to understand the truth of what has been given to us. Rest in that. Secondly is this. Start breaking down the text a little more. First, we realize what God has given. Secondly, you utilize what God has given. Understand the truth of the matter and then put it to work. Right? Get to work, Peter tells us. Put it in motion. And he says this. Look at the text again. He says, as each one has employed a special gift, or been given a special gift, employ it, right? What does employment mean? It refers to your work. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. This echoes the thought of Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. This is the humility, we could say, of Christian service. We can all witness to the fact we are known as servants of God. And that's what we do. We serve. We're not merely a hired hand. We are in the household of God, ministering to one another, ministering to others. This comes with obligations. This comes with commitment. Isn't it interesting? You know, we you go to a job, unless, unless you're a slave to your job, some of us are, but you go to your, your place of employment and, and sometimes you have the option where you're like, it stinks here. I hate this job. I don't like my boss. I'm out of here. I'm going to find something else or strike out on my own. Sometimes we think, oh, we have that option. Right. But not when it comes to being stewards in the household of God. We don't just walk away. We don't just quit. We don't just go find something else to do when it no longer suits us or when someone bothers us or offends us. See, this is how we persevere, friends. We see that we belong to God. We're no longer slaves of sins, but we are slaves to righteousness. Okay? We belong to Jesus. We are under His authority. So put away any thought that Jesus is your co-pilot, or that Jesus is your wingman, or that Jesus is your homeboy. You belong to Him. You are on His ship, and He calls the shots. He is the captain of our salvation and our souls. So there is no running. There is no jumping ship when things get difficult. Let your mindset be this from Psalm 84.10. For a day is better in your house than a thousand outside. I would rather stand in the threshold of my God than dwell in the house of wickedness. We sometimes must change our attitude toward how we view life in the household of God. But it is so much better here than what it was outside. But it is a privilege to serve God in any capacity. And that service may evolve over time. You may discover gifts later on you didn't realize you had and then have different responsibilities as you are faithful and consistent. But bottom line, we want to understand what a privilege it is to serve God in any capacity and to utilize that which He has given to us. And it says this, as good stewards. Steward was one who was entrusted by the head of the household with the management of his personal affairs. You know, in some sense, they, offer, they, they operated as a secretary, what we know as a secretary today. Took care of receipts, took care of expenses, 
They often had, as one commentator says, the duty of dealing out the proper portion to every servant. This was a caretaker. See, not an owner. Nothing that we have, we own. We, are, we manage it. We are stewards of it. As one, as one radio host used to say, talent on loan from God. It all comes from Him. It all comes from God. How much then should we use it and use it well to be a steward, to be a, to a, steward, to be a, a righteous servant that, so that when the Master shows up, just as is illustrated in Luke 16.1, we are not found to have squandered the Master's possession. We didn't sit on it. We can say, here, Lord, your servant has taken a talent and has gained five. But there was multiplication, that there was an investment made and fruit that was yielded instead of finding ourselves under the harsh hand of discipline. Good stewards. Good stewards of what? Peter says this, look at the text again, of the manifold grace of God. What manifold does is speak to the nature of those gifts. It's to say that they are multifaceted and varied. They are many colored. What this points us to is that even within this opportunity to serve God, there is God's creative work so that the church can function. And how that applies to us is that we shouldn't view service in such a wooden way. There are many ways to serve. There are many ways to serve. Service that comes from many different servants. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, chapter 12, first book, 4-6, through six, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. See, it's manifold. There's varieties. Yet it all comes from the same source. And there are a variety of ministries but, and the same Lord. That is, however we minister, we understand that we are under the authority of the Lord Himself, the Lord Jesus. There are varieties, Paul says, of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. I think that speaks to why we honor one another as we serve each other, because we recognize that this is God working through us to serve one another, and to expand His kingdom. But no two gifts are exactly alike, and I think rarely you will find the same combination of gifts. Most of the time you will find that God has not given you only one gift, perhaps He has, to serve the church. But most of the time you will find that God has given you different kinds of gifts. Some of you may be able to teach, but perhaps you, ha- you, you are gifted with being able to show mercy or hospitality. There's a variety of, condom, uh, of, of gifts given. variety of combinations. And from this palette of divine grace, God has given each of us a unique color. I think that's why it's called gift. Notice it's called gift in this text. Singular, because it is the sum of all the spiritual graces that have been given to each of us. That is our, you could say, our unique gift. Even though Peter narrows it down to two categories, speaking gifts and non-speaking gifts. So there's the first one, good stewards we serve. And here's the other one, speaking. Look at the text again. He says in verse 11, whoever speaks and then whoever serves, right? The speaking is not ordinary conversation. We would, we would understand speaking as authoritative teaching. These are those who teach, those who preach. This perhaps could include evangelism. We know that evangelism is a spiritual gift. We would say that there is absolutely an urgent need for for especially men to step up in this department, to speak the Word of God, to teach solidly. We know that this is the, the pitfall of many churches today is that the Word of God and its authority has been put aside. We need 
godly men to step up and proclaim his word. So that's what, simply defined, that's what teaching is, authoritative teaching. And here's the second one, verse 11 again. Those who serve, right? Just serving. Could be administration, encouragement, mercy, generosity, some of the things we just read and covered already. But there is something for everyone who believes. Everyone who claims Christ. Everyone who has been given that gift of salvation, who has been born again, has a capacity to serve, has been called to serve. Sometimes we hammer on this because we just, it's not, some, some of you are out there today and you don't even, see, you don't see yourself necessarily as exempt, and yet there is that temptation to be around as little as possible, to make yourself scarce. And that's going to make it very difficult to be able to serve. So not only show up, but stick around. It is through that time investment, through being present with the body of Christ, and especially on the Lord's Day, where you will find opportunity and even clarity as to what your gifts are, and then you can use them. We find that God is a God of infinite resources. He is able to empower each of us to do that. Think about the disciples. That's the only reason they could do what they did. In Matthew 10.8, He sends them out and says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. That's key, right? Freely we received everything. So we give freely. We, we see the perils of thinking that we can buy the gift of God or that we can somehow profit in an ungodly manner from it. We char- to charge for our services. But our calling is to understand this grace of God and to freely serve each other. Not to see it as an opportunity for ungodly gain. So realize your calling, utilize it, and then stay there. Commit yourself to that work great verse that illustrates this truth is Luke 12.35 where Jesus says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed, listen to this, blessed are the slaves whom the master will find on alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve. We are always ready. We're always dressed in readiness. Here's a couple things when it comes to serving, when it comes to teaching, just to, just to be aware of. And these are pretty, I think these are pretty easy to recognize. First of this is be, beware of pride. Beware of pride. Beware of competing for supremacy with one another, especially if you, if you, have a, if you are partnered in, in a ministry. I think, you know, Jer- Jeremy and I, we have that, that, that pleasure and privilege to serve you guys. How detrimental to the church's mission would it be if we were constantly engaging in spiritual and doctrinal one-upmanship? Especially if our teaching time or Bible studies was simply a time where we sat down and said, well, guess what I discovered this week? Oh, that's, that's great. Well, guess what I found out? That's interesting. And we're just going back and forth trying to out-profound one another. That doesn't do anyone any good. So in that same way, do not strive with each other. Do not strive against each other. Beware of pride. Beware of self-conceit. Beware of seeing one another as competitions. We're not comp- competing with one another. We are striving together to proclaim Christ, to make Him known, to glorify Him. Here's another one. Beware of power. This is what I mean. In your service, don't become a spiritual control freak. Just as, as, there, as there are many varieties of gifts, so there are a variety of ways, methods in which we employ them. Be flexible in your service and be willing to see this gift exercise in a different way. Do 
Do not employ your gift in such a manner that you see it as superior to everyone else, and that there is only one right way to employ it. And here's a third thing. We don't have to be exhausted, but here's a third thing to keep in mind. Beware of neglect. Beware of neglect. Simply not paying attention or putting aside the gift that God has given you. 1 Timothy 4.14. He has to tell this to Tim, Paul has to tell this to Timothy. Do not neglect, neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was granted to you through words of prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. That is, don't bury your talent. Or don't bury your talents. So unless the Lord... And until the Lord leads you elsewhere, do not abandon your, pro- your post. Don't be like Jonah, called to preach to the Ninevites and then runs, hides in a ship. Be faithful. Stand your ground. Church history is fraught with tragic stories about teachers and preachers and servants who abandon their post, sometimes in the greatest need, when there was so much opportunity to serve the church and to preach Christ. And I know that there is... Look, serving, teaching, any capacity of ministry is going to come with challenges, whether that's you know, persecution, rejection, maybe it's not getting a whole, lot of, a whole lot of traction, maybe you're seeing very little fruit, maybe you're being judged constantly on how you do it by other church members, you know, whether that is just judgment or unjust judgment. That's, that's going to be a reality of service. You are going to be criticized. I hate to break it to you, but when you serve in the church, you are going to be criticized. Someone's always going to come to you with that blessed insight of how to do it better or what you should or should not be doing. And that is going to discourage you. And sometimes that discouragement is going to make you throw up your hands and say, I can't do this anymore. Guess what? You can do this anymore, and you must stand your ground and be faithful unless it is clear that God is leading you elsewhere. But don't use affliction as an excuse to say, this is the voice of God leading me elsewhere. So those are the first two. Realize what God has given. Utilize what God has given. And then three, energize what God has given. That is, where is the, to, to answer this question, where is, where is, or how is my work being empowered? What gives strength to my teaching? What gives strength to my service? It's not you. It comes from elsewhere. Energize what God has given. So we broke the text up in a peculiar way, but go back to verse 11. What energizes speaking? He says, whoever speaks. Look look how Peter says. Is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God or oracles of God. Are Are you a teacher? Are you a preacher? Don't use merely words. Use words that come from God. That is what is going to... Men out there, even women, if you're going to teach in a Bible study, know this. If you are speaking, speak God's Word. That is what is going to energize your teaching. That is what is going to transform it. But you are not teaching the words of men or the wisdom of this world. When you open your mouth to speak, to preach, you are representing God. You are saying, the Lord is saying this, and I am explaining it to you. This word, so important. The utterances of God. The word for that is simply word. We're giving a word. We're we're treating it as the word of God. Listen to this. The word of God, the utterances of God, is something that is tragically neglected in the church today. And I think that so much of the church is repeating that same mistake that Israel made. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Romans. He says, Then what advantage does the Jew have? Remember, all are guilty. All are guilty before God. Or what is the benefit of circumcision? He says, Great in every respect. 
And he says, first of all, and he doesn't even mention a second in that entire chapter, but he says this, first, that they were entrusted with the actual words of God. God gave them his word. They were entrusted with writing down what God said. They had the scriptures. That is first and foremost. And yet they neglected it. They did not put it into practice. They did not listen and obey. They did not trust in what it was saying, though it was entrusted to them. And go, you go ahead in, their, in, in the history of Israel's kingdom and you read this in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 10. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions. And to the prophets, you must not prophesy the truth to us. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Oh man, we love that. Pleasant words. Man, sometimes listening to the Word of God is hard. There is judgment. There are demands to repent. There is the righteousness of God made clear. Yeah, these words are clear. They're, they're, they're God's Word. They're beautiful to us. They're marvelous to us. I and mean, we want to hear, but, some, but there are teachings that are hard. And Israel didn't want to hear this. They didn't want to listen to it. Or Judah, rather. They wanted pleasant words. They wanted to hear that everything was going to be alright. And I think that that there describes this naivete that most of the human race has. That in our heart of hearts, we really believe that every little thing is going to be alright. In spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our hopelessness, we, we nurse this fool's hope that at the end, everything is going to really be okay and work out to my favor and to my joy. Those are the pleasant words we want. We don't want the hard teachings of Scripture. We don't want to listen to God's commands. We don't want to hear things about Christ being Lord and worthy of our obedience in addition to our faith. So this is a call to those who would teach to not teach those pleasant words, to not try to ease the mind of people who remain in unbelief. We speak God's words. We labor for that purpose. We are to speak the oracles of God. That's what it says. The oracles of God. That is what energizes our teaching. That anytime we give instruction, I would say even in the home, but especially on the Lord's Day, when we speak, we speak that which is energized by God's power and authority. When we speak, especially on the Lord's Day, the Word of God should be the only Word that you are exposed to. Forget worldly wisdom. We focus our minds on God's Word. Listen to what Spurgeon had to say on this. The child of God without any derogation from his honor is when he is strengthened by God like the knight in the midst of common soldiers. He is clad from head to foot in the armor of the light of God and he wields the sword of the Spirit, which is swift and sharp. When he speaks, listen to this, when he speaks, God speaks through him. And when he pleads with men, God gives him the power that touches consciences and hearts and conquers them with holy arguments. See, sometimes when we're listening to the Word of God preach, the flesh will recoil in horror, right? Oh, I can't, I can't hear that. I can't accept that. But the Word of God prevails. The Word of God conquers you, conquers the inner man, conquers the flesh with holy arguments. And if, and if you are born again, you should see the Word of God with such gravitas. These are holy arguments that I am hearing. How can I resist them? Rather, I should rejoice in them. Let that be a serious reminder 
those of you who would teach and preach that you are under God's authority, that it, I mean, really is a matter of life and death. We should think of ourselves as in the same fashion as the Old Testament prophet. But this was a dangerous thing that if we are to speak, we better make sure that we are speaking that which God has spoken and nothing else. Do not take away from it. Do not add to it. Do not misrepresent Him. We are to say only what God has said. That's what it means to preach the Word of God. That's the first and most obvious thing. When we preach the oracles of God, that is to say only what God has said. We are not preaching the wisdom and insights of men. We are not teaching cleverly devised tales. We are speaking for God. And by God, we are casting down man-made arguments. Israel faced serious indictment for this. Listen to Ezekiel 22.28. And her prophets have coated with whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, this is what the Lord says when the Lord has not spoken. See, that's huge for for those out there who have the gift of teaching, who desire to speak forth the Word of God. Don't say what God has spoken. There should be some kind of holy terror every time you stand behind the pulpit, or even if there is no pulpit. right? Can't hide behind it. But you've got to ask yourself this question, has God actually spoken this? Is this accurate? Is this consistent with His revealed Word? And if it isn't, I'm not going to say it. And church, you should not be interested in anything that the teacher or preacher says that falls out, out of bounds of what God has spoken so clearly. You did not come here to hear the voice of men. You did not come here to hear the wisdom of men. You have come here to, to hear God's Word spoken clearly and to rejoice that it has been so. But we dare not say the Lord says this when the Lord has not spoken. Listen to Deuteronomy 18.20, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my, in my name, a word which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Oh, if we had this kind of holy terror. I'll teach, right? I'll preach this sermon, but I don't want to die. There should be some fear of God upon the preacher or teacher when he does that. Realize in the same chapter in Deuteronomy 18, there's a command. Put that dreamer to death. This guy comes out and he leads you astray to follow and worship other gods other than the Lord. Put that dreamer to death. We hear that so often today, do we not? There's a dreamer behind this. And he's giving you his dreams. But he's not giving you the authoritative Word of God. Get that guy out of here. He has no right to speak. So when we preach the oracles of God, we also preach urgently. It is to know the the fear of the Lord and to persuade men to call them to repent, to no longer walk in darkness and in unbelief, but to believe the good news of the King. Even Paul, even in his teaching, that was very present. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, we urge you, be reconciled to God. It's like we're pleading with people. Do not stand as God's enemy any longer. Be in a right relationship with Him that does not involve judgment and fear, but one that involves peace and righteousness and faith. Here's another one, and this, one's, this is a rather extended sub-point, but let's work through this. To teach the oracles of God also means to give it a prominent place in the church. The Word of God is central. We don't treat it as a secondary manner. matter. Listen to Deuteronomy 31. You'll see a pattern here throughout redemptive history of how the Word of God is meant to be handled. And we, we find out very quickly in Scripture's narrative 
that to not follow the Word of God means what? It means death. It means estrangement. It means judgment. But listen to Deuteronomy 31. So Moses wrote down, verse 9, this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses says this, goes on in the text. He says in verse 12, Assemble the people, men, women, children, and the foreigners within your gates, so that they may listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and to follow carefully all the words of this law. Then their children who do not know the law will listen and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Bring everybody in. Read the word to them so that they may know and fear. Right? The whole... Everyone without exception. The whole community of God's people. This is repeated faithfully by Joshua. In Joshua 8, 32-35, we read this. And he wrote there on the, copy, on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. And all Israel with their elders, officers, and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the strangers as well as the natives. So you have all the people there. And then listen to what Joshua does in verse 34. Then afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to everything that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. This is for everyone, even the foreigner. They couldn't say, I'm not part of this community. No, you're here. You are under the authority of God's Word. See, Joshua read the whole counsel of God. And I bet you it took him longer than an hour. <laughs> took him a good, good amount of time. And then you go through Israel's history, and you know what eventually happens? The book of the law is lost. And then in 2 Kings 22, the book of the law is found. And it's read before Josiah the king, who tears his clothes and weeps. Why? Because he knows that they have rebelled against it. They have not obeyed the Lord tears his clothes, and he weeps. Then in chapter 23 of 2 Kings, we read this, Then the king sent messengers, and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and every man of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests, the prophets, and all the people from small to great. You notice the gathering of the assembly again. And he read in their presence all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep His commandments, His provisions, and His statutes with all His heart and all His soul to carry out the words of the covenant that were written in this book and all the people entered into the covenant. See, so this is the spirit of, of, of what we're looking for when we preach. When we preach and teach, yes, there is the word going forth, but it demands a response from all y'all out there. Not just lip service, not just an amen, but, but a, a resolution to say, by faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I will walk after the Lord and keep His commandments with all my heart and all my soul. Not hypocritically, not half-heartedly, but with everything you've got. Because we know that the law of the Lord is good. And for our good. Go down further. Post-exilic. Nehemiah 8, 1 through 3. So you notice that Israel was not consistent. They eventually were vomited from the land. But 8, Nehemiah 8, 1 through 3 contains this. And all the people gathered as one person at the public square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, 
and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Listen to this. And he read it, he, he read from it before the public square, which is in the front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. This is hours, friends, hours in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ugh. Notice no one was saying, oh, time, I've got things I've got to do. I've got places I've got to go. I, the game is on. <sighs> to hell with your game. The Word of God is being proclaimed. Listen. And, and listen to this. Verse 4. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for this purpose. So, so the attention would be drawn not to Ezra so much, but as to the book of the law, which would be read. And then verse 8, they read from the book, the law of God, translating it to give the sense so that they understood the reading. So we call exposition. He read it and he explained the text so people understood. Now look at the result. Verse 12, then all the people went away to eat, drink, and send portions, and to celebrate a great feast. Why? Because they understood the words which had been known, made known to them. See, this is why we eat after. We try to glut ourselves on the Word, and then we glut ourselves on good food. But we celebrate because the Word has gone forward, not just through preaching, but also through the reading of Scripture and through singing to one another. It all fits. Then we go with gladness and feast. Listen to Nehemiah 9.3. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Notice the priority here. Notice their preoccupation. They gathered again on another occasion to hear the word of the Lord. This continues in the days of the New Covenant Church. Notice the continuity here from Acts 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And then he preaches the gospel. In his instruction to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul says this, until I come, give your attention to the public reading, to exhortation and teaching. Nothing's changed. It's the same thing. Although on this side of the cross, we have more revelation. But that is what we do. We give teaching, it's, we give the Word of God its prominence, the attention that it is worthy of. Because we understand its transforming power. We understand it's the beauty of it and its truth that God has spoken to man and revealed himself to him, a man who would, men who would otherwise pay no attention. And finally, it is this, to preach the oracles or to preach the word of God, it is to preach with faith, anticipating that God will do his work according to his own good and sovereign will. We preach by faith. We preach believing that God will do his work, that his word will not return void. Listen to 1 Timothy 4.6. In pointing out these things to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the good doctrine which you have been following. See, we, go, we believe in the benefit of the Scriptures. That's why we proclaim it. We believe that it builds up the church, that it nourishes the church, that it is sufficient for life and godliness. That's why we think about 2 Timothy 3.16, right? 15 and 16. 
about Scripture being inspired by God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, there is a purpose in mind here, and we know that as God works in His church, that purpose will be unfailingly achieved. Now listen to the word of Jesus. This is why. This is why we give the word a prominent spot and why we preach it by faith. John 17, 7, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What is sanctification? It's to become more like Jesus, right? It's to be conformed to His image. How does that happen? How do we become more like Jesus? Through the word of truth. That's how it happens. So that's why we give the word its, 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 its time and its position. We want, to take, we want to be a church that takes the Word of God seriously, that does not give it lip service, that does not treat it well when it's convenient to, but to see it as the authoritative and abiding and binding Word of truth that ministers to us, that blesses us, that reminds us afresh of the beauty of the Gospel of Christ, and that we can walk in it together by faith and power. But we want to know what we're talking about, right? One, one quote we've given before is, the only thing more dangerous than an ignorant man is an ignorant man with a Bible. Right? We do not want to be ignorant concerning God's Word. We want to study it and understand it and then proclaim it. And finally, we come to serving. What energizes serving? Look at this. The strength which God supplies, back to the text. Whoever serves is to do so as one who serves by the strength which God supplies. So even in serving, we understand that we are not our own. We don't do it from our own strength but it is God who strengthens us to do that. It's food for service. Think about your own body. You eat food, you burn it, makes you stronger. If you don't eat, what happens? Your body starts to consume itself. Some of us treat minute, we approach ministry that way, do we not? Burning the candle at both ends, as we call it. We become, we become weak. We get worn out. We call it burnout. But when we do this work, when we serve, we serve according to the strength which God supplies. How do we know we're doing that? I think a few things. And I'll list them here quickly. One is if you are working according to the strength which God supplies, you will have joy. You will be satisfied at the work that God is doing. There will be a joyfulness in it. Secondly, you will be able to persevere. God will give you His strength to persevere through all kinds of difficulty. You will not cut out at the first sign of affliction. Thirdly, there will, it will be fruitful. If God is giving you the strength, it will be, the work will bear fruit. Fourthly, and this leads us to the final part of the text, you will know that you are serving with the strength which God supplies because you will do so for God's glory. And that leads us to the final point of this passage. And we'll go over it quickly. Okay. Turn your attention to verse 11 once again. The end of all things spurs us on to a godly ambition, right? What is it that we desire most in our serving? Well, verse 11 says this very plainly. So that in all things, so there we go. Why are we prayerful? Why do we love? Why are we hospitable? Why are we watchful? Why do we serve? Why do we teach? Why does the church do all of these things? We ask ourselves that. Why? That's a good question. So that in all things, God may be glorified. All of these things that you do, you may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. So our holy assignment, our godly assignment, is fueled by a godly, holy ambition. Notice who gets the attention. 
Notice who gets the admiration. You realize Christianity is the only environment in which this could possibly work? To be filled with the Holy Spirit, to do all things to the glory of God. In any other setting, my friends, you would not be able to stand this, to do this work, and not have some kind of glory and attention and love and adoration from other people. You would have to have it. It's an idol of the heart. But within the church, within our life in Christ, this is possible. This is a command. This is, this, is, this is the demand on us. Where Christ gets all the glory, and you know what? We like it. It doesn't bother us that we don't get that attention or that admiration. What matters is that Christ is put on display, that He looks good, that His name is magnified, that He is on the pedestal, as it were. See, we prize this above anything else. So that in all things, in all of our serving, all of our teaching, we want God to have the glory. It's the very reason. This points to the very reason of human existence. And in Christ, this purpose to us is restored and it is achievable. We can now give God the glory. And the reason we can, we can do that because we can draw strength from His Spirit to do so. Comprehensive in its degree is the glory of God and eternal in its length. Notice that. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. And we get to participate in that in our service and teaching. To Christ is all the glory. He is to be magnified. He is to be prized above all else. And His dominion also. Keep that in mind in terms of your service. The dominion. Christian brought that up in his sermon a couple weeks ago. This issue of dominion. See, in Christ, the dominion mandate has been restored. And I would even say magnified because now, as we serve and teach, we see, we use that so that Christ's dominion, His kingdom, is, ex- is expanded and proclaimed over all the earth. What we are doing in this is simply giving God what rightfully belongs to Him and telling everyone else to do the same. And this is forever and ever. No expiration date. It never runs out. And this is something that we engage in with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Something that we enjoy that we see as eternal, infinite, and priceless, and they come from simple instructions. And yet, look at the fruit that God is glorified through Christ being proclaimed and served. That's the highest calling ever. It's a call we fight for, we serve, and in some cases, we'll see in next week's text something worth dying for. So that is steadfastness. That is the flame, the flame of true grace. And by God's grace, may it burn brightly. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time in your word. We pray that uh, so much said today, um, so many things to, to ponder, but I do pray, Lord, that we stand in readiness, that we do stand steadfast and faithful, that the flame of grace may keep on burning, um, that we may not step away from our calling as teachers and as stewards in your household, that we would do so faithfully that we would see this text as motivation, Lord, to see the opportunity that comes with knowing you, with placing our faith in Christ, that, that he shall have dominion. We know that. We want that. And yet we get to be a part of that because we proclaim that word. We would see Christ honored, Lord. We would see him glorified. We would see his dominion expand so that all may bow the knee and worship him and adore him. That's what we want. That is our holy ambition And if only we could ponder that more. And may we, Lord, as you call it to our minds. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Help these things that we have gone over to be characteristic of us, that we would uh, 
use the power which you supply, that we would take your word seriously as your words, Lord, as authoritative and as having the power to save. So please, God, be honored by our worship and as we partake of your table this morning. Bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen.